Acts chapter 19. We're going to look at a bigger chunk of Scripture today, beginning at verse 23 and reading through verse 41. Hear the Word of God. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be uh, despised and her magnificence destroyed whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand, and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who were neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. Father, we look to your word and we seek your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. seems like one of the biggest uh, topics of conversation that I've been hearing over the last two uh, weeks has been the bailout of Fannie Mae and uh, Freddie Mac, and you can definitely see why, uh, with such a massive uh, robbery, basically, of future wealth from every man, woman, and child. It's hard to ignore this, but it's not really the first uh, time that this has happened. It's not a change in Washington's policies of wealth distribution. All the way back in 1983, Herbert Schlossberg said, the schemes by which people get economic benefit at the expense of others are almost endless in variety. And he outlined all kinds of different ways in which there has been a redistribution of wealth to the poor, to the middle class, to the wealthy, to the elite behind the scenes, to internationalists, to various levels of government, uh, and uh, everybody is in on the game, at least everybody that's in the know. It's easy to use the power of coercion to satisfy the envy of citizens, 
And every gift that is given to citizens seems to benefit a whole lot of other bureaucrats and other uh, elite behind the scenes. Now, in this chapter, we're going to be seeing there's a city clerk who is unnamed uh, who really puts Demetrius in his place. He shames Demetrius and puts a stop to what he is planning. I think he shames a lot of modern Christians uh, who are not anywhere near as noble as this pagan city clerk was in the things uh, that he did. And what is encouraging to me about this passage is that an economics of envy can be slowed down in even a pagan government. Very encouraging to me. And we're going to be analyzing some of the principles in this chapter, both humanistic as well as uh, good. But it's clear in America that we live in a time of enormous avarice and envy and uh, various forms of theft. And I'm glad citizens are really upset. At least some citizens are very upset about this bailout. They should be. But it's not the first one. Let me just outline a few in the past. There was the airline bailout in 2001. And the interesting thing about the ATSS uh, Act there is it allowed the Treasury to buy uh, stock, purchase stocks at below market prices to any company that they guaranteed loans for. Not just that they gave loans for, but that they guaranteed loans for. So it's not the first time there's been attempts at nationalization. And there was the savings and loan debacle in 1989, and the final tab for that was $220.32 billion. Then there was the Continental Illinois National Bank and Trust Company bailout in which the government gained 80% interest in the company. They eventually divested themselves of it, but in the meantime, there were all kinds of hands uh, in the till. Uh, Then uh, there was the Chrysler Corporation issue in 1980, New York City bailout 1975, Franklin National Bank 1974, Lockheed 1971, uh, Penn Central Railroad, 1970s, etc., etc. Now, those are the more obvious forms where you say, now, wait a minute, why should the government be bailing out companies with uh, tax dollars? But virtually every federal agency has massive forms of economic theft inherent in their day-to-day operations. Virtually every sector of society has marched up to the feeding trough Uh, or has benefited in less obvious ways like tariffs, quotas, regulations, grants, uh, agency interventions into the private market and other hidden forms of inequity. Uh, Schlossberg points out it's not just welfare that is redistribution. Uh, So is government educational industry because it's taking money out of your pocket even if you're not sending your kids to school and it's giving it to somebody else. It's an institutionalized form of theft. Um, So is inflation. So is aid to foreign countries. So are green regulations. So is a graduated income tax. Schlossberg said, It is becoming ever more difficult to cover up the fact that redistribution is a Ponzi game that can pay off old victims only by producing new ones. The moral justifications fade and are replaced by force. As the claims to be championing justice appear increasingly ludicrous, Hayek's warning that the recipients of redistribution can be a racial elite, a party, or an aristocracy will be seen to be prescient. And I highly recommend you read that book. Uh, It's um, Idols for Destruction by Herbert Schlossberg. It's in my top ten list of books on gaining uh, worldview. I think it's a, a wonderful book. But if you do not educate yourself on the politics of envy, you're not going to be able to prepare yourselves and protect yourselves from the politics of envy. 
Now, I should point out that envy is not unique to our culture. It is not. Envy has always been present. We're going to be seeing in this chapter. It was present way back there in the time of, uh, of, of Ephesus. But our culture has become much more sophisticated than Demetrius in camouflaging envy and portraying it as being virtue. That's what is troubling to me, where these things that should be seen clearly immediately as being a, the sin of envy are actually pawned off as being a virtue. Evangelicals who promote various forms of socialism are doing a great sin against God because they are calling darkness light and they are calling evil good. And we're going to be seeing that the so-called helpfulness of Demetrius to his fellow citizens uh, was exposed as an evil by an unnamed city clerk, just like some of the talk show radio hosts have exposed what is going on today uh, as being evil. But we should not be fooled into thinking that this is an oddball occurrence. America has been full of envy for many years, and envy afflicted Ephesus. So what we're going to do today, this is all by way of introduction, what we're going to do is we're going to take a tiny glimpse at the ugly world of cultural envy. And let's begin at verse 23. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Now the words in about that time indicates that it took uh, over two years before Christianity began to run afoul of this cultural envy. And I think there are three reasons why it took that long. Uh, other cities, it was a lot quicker. But first reason is that this was a, a Roman city, a special kind of a city that was given a, a fair degree of uh, autonomy, but it was also had some uh, religious um, freedom. Secondly, it was a Greek city at the same time. And uh, they had democracy, and those two things mixed together allowed a great measure of pluralism to, uh, to, to flourish. As long as Christians didn't negatively influence people's lifestyles, there was not going to be as much persecution maybe as there would have been in some of the cities. Now, the third reason is that Ephesus was the third largest uh, city in the empire, and uh, several scholars say it was the second largest economy. It was next to... Um, uh, next to Rome uh, in size. And so it took a while before the uh, Christianity Paul was preaching would begin to have a, a, an impact that could be felt by the corporations. It's clear from Demetrius' speech, he's been wondering what's been going on. He's been looking at Paul's speeches and he gets some of uh, Paul's um, message correct. He's found the source, though, of his diminishing revenues. Now, I guess I should state also that... Uh, we, the fact that it took two years uh, is a phenomenal thing. It should not take a hundred years before Christianity begins to have an impact in absolutely every area of life. Two years, that's phenomenal to have that kind of an impact upon this city. In um, uh, this passage, he's one businessman to Christ. In verse 31, he's at least made friends. If they're not Christians, some commentators believe that these public officials... Uh, some of them had become Christians, but he's at least made friends with them. And within two centuries, this was a predominantly Christian city where idolatry no longer had a lucrative uh, part of their economy. That means within two centuries, Christianity took, turned the economic system upside down. If Christianity is virile, which I assume our modern Christianity must not be, but if Christianity is virile, it should begin to affect everything. The second thing that we see is that Christianity was controversial. 
In verse 23, says, About that time there arose a great commotion about the way. It was controversial first because it was dogmatic. He doesn't speak about a way that maybe can be in competition with that. It speaks of the way. This is a dogmatism. This is the only way God wants them uh, to be walking. And in that pluralistic society, that doesn't sit too well. And I think in America, which has become exceedingly pluralistic, um, the dogmatism of Christianity is going to become less and less tolerated. Point C, Christianity was also clearly defined. Unlike modern emergent Christianity, Pauline Christianity stood in contrast to everything else. It was not a synthesis. In other words, it was not a mixture of paganism and Christianity. It was a complete world view. It was the way. Okay, It was defined. Biblical economics stood in contrast to pagan economics. Biblical politics, business, worship, family, arts, every area of life was so defined that they could speak about it as being the way. It was something that was quite different from everything else. And because it was not wishy-washy, even though it was controversial, when paganism began to crumble, they knew exactly where Paul stood. They knew what to adopt. It was clearly defined. And then point D the Christianity of Paul struck at the heart of the current economics of envy. Now, Paul spoke, I mean, Demetrius spoke with disdain of this Paul, and uh, it's clear in his speech he recognizes that Christianity that Paul preached is incompatible with their lifestyle, with their business, with what they were doing. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it, it was at war uh, with their lifestyle. And so just see verse 23 as the theme and see the rest of the chapter as an amplification on it. Now let me quickly outline seven features in Ephesus that can be found in our own American politics of um, envy. Greed is the first one. Greed is part and parcel of humanity in every age and in every uh, culture. Uh, in a true free market of economics where contract law is enforced, uh, greed is held in check to some degree, but it's never eliminated apart from God's grace. Uh, when an economics of envy takes root in a culture as it had in that ancient democracy, then greed's ugly side begins to be manifested. So let's read verses 24 through 25. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, made no small profit to the craftsmen, when they were all making a killing on the product, verse 25, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. What's the first thing that he appeals to? He appeals to their pocketbook. Okay? He's uh, not saying, hey, we've got to become better competitors. We've got to refine the way in which we're giving our advertising and our message. He didn't want to compete. Uh, he's not interested in the truth. Uh, he's not interested in playing by the law. In fact, uh, we're going to be seeing later on in this chapter that uh, the city clerk says what he was engaging in was actually illegal. It was unlawful. Uh, his driving concern is greed, and it ran roughshod over everything else that he did. He wants his pockets filled, even if it means confronting a democratically elected government. He's the head of a large corporation, and he no doubt thought he could push his weight around if he got enough people, enough citizens, to support his plan. And I think that elected officials are often afraid of confronting the masses. If he can get the government to establish a monopoly, they will maintain their profits. I think that's exactly what's going on here. Now, Gary North said this, Greed is a killer. 
Greed tells men that they are entitled to more than the free market offers to them for their efforts. Greed tells men that they are worth more, always more. So they start looking for ways to beat the market with its limits of open competition. They start looking for aid from the state. The politician is in the business of getting reelected. He must go into the market for votes and buy them. He sells the public what it wants in exchange for votes. If the public wants economic favors, then that's what the politician will sell him. And when the bill comes due, higher taxes, the politician will then start pitching guilt back at the voter or pay for money. The public establishes the political currency of its realm. The politician responds accordingly in order to buy the currency of his realm, votes. Once this process begins, it is almost impossible to reverse it. One of the few cases in history when it was reversed was in England from 1845 to 75, only for a single generation. They tore down the trade barriers, strengthened the gold standard, allowed capital free flow. The result was an outpouring of productivity, but it didn't last long. Why? Well, it's hard to resist the lure of a culture of envy. Politicians know that they can uh, profit. Citizens know that they can profit. And this is one of the things that frustrated Oliver Cromwell so much. He just fi finally figured out democracy does not work. Uh, everybody seemed to have their hand in the till back in his day. Now, in this most recent bailout, I think everybody's recognized that uh, this, is, this is the way the game is played. You, you have a crisis, and everybody wants a piece of the action, the earmarks. Uh, citizens will go along if they think that they're going to benefit from it, you know, and the price of their housing and uh, their, uh, their mortgages are going to be guaranteed or the stock market's not, are not going to crash. Uh, they're going to be willing to put up with a lot of things they might not otherwise like. Greed is not checked with our modern system. used to be held in check, but it's not in check now. Uh, now. Hear me on this. It's not greed that's the problem. Greed is present in every economy. It's present whether you've got a free market, a dictatorship, doesn't matter where you are. Greed is going to be present in any system. The difference is once the floodgates of government intervention are unleashed, there is no check to modern greed other than the threat of force that the city clerk resorts to later on in this chapter. So greed and envy are at the heart of our modern problem. Second thing that Demetrius appeals to is fear. Verses 26 through 27. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, and let's just stop there for a moment, we'll pick up the rest of the verse in the next point, but what's he appealing to? He's appealing to fear about a massive economic loss, a meltdown. This trade of ours is in danger of falling. Isn't that exactly the same motivation for the modern bailout? Fear that our stocks will fall. Fear that our housing prices will fall. That our economy will tank. People will do almost anything to shore up their investments. And it's made um, people willing to accept the fascist promises of current candidates. Now, citizens may not like what the feds do. You say, well, they're complaining about the Fed. Yeah, they complain about God as well. But, you see, they're looking to the state to bail them out of everything because of their fears of what is going to happen if they don't. It was fear that led Germany to embrace Hitler's 
uh, programs, his solutions, and it's fear that made the Senate and the Congress pass a bill I doubt most of them even read. The words, trust me, I think, <laughs> are, are part and parcel when fear is present. Uh, anytime you see a great deal of public fear, look for that to be followed by more and more grabs for power. Look for tyranny. Third common theme that we see is guilt. Verse 27 goes on to say, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed whom all Asia and the world worship. He's in effect saying, we've got to do something about this. Otherwise, this marvelous culture is going to collapse. It's going to be destroyed. He's appealing to Gil to promote his economic policies, his agenda. And to this day, guilt is used very, very effectively in our culture as well. Now, sometimes it's uh, guilt that comes from religious uh, reasoning, such as he gives here, but it can cover any area of life. Uh, the rich are made to feel guilty because they're rich when there are so many poor out there. And the middle class are made to feel guilty because they're so successful. And uh, whites are made to feel guilty because they're white. And Asians are made to feel guilty because they're successful in everything they put their hands to. At least that's the stereotype uh, that's out there. Christians are made to feel guilty, you know, that Columbus came and destroyed a, a beautiful, innocent, you know, civilization of Indians. And when you say, you guys have got it wrong, this is revisionist history, you're going to be demonized. You start doing that, you're going you're gonna to find fire under your seat. And um, uh, Americans are made to feel guilty that they have most of the world's wealth. And taxpayers are made to feel guilty that kids are not getting adequate meals and each of those areas of guilt and many others is one of the driving forces that leads to more and more redistribution of, of wealth. R.J. Rushdoony pointed that out very, very well in his book, another book I recommend, The Politics of Guilt and Pity. And it's beginning to backfire. There's a lot of people beginning to be resentful, and it's going to cause division in our, in our uh, empire here. But much of modern social planning is a humanistic way to deal with guilt. See, they've got their own salvation, and it's uh, from a messianic state. A fourth commonality is propaganda, verse 28. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is exactly what Demetrius wanted from his speech. It was designed not to educate, but it was designed to prejudice and inflame a passionate commitment. And this is the way I see many modern debates uh, in the political arena. If you compare the debate, for example, between McCain and Obama, compare it to almost any debate that went on in the late 1700s or the early 1800s, even actually into the eight, late 1800s, and one of the things you're going to see is there's a massive difference in terms of substance. The early debates were designed to sway your mind, to give you rational arguments, whereas the modern debates are designed to stir up your passions, and they're just really shallow, a shallow propaganda. Uh, modern speeches are made to incite cheering and clapping and stomping of feet because if they can get the emotions going, they can get people to commit to a candidate without even thinking through what the issues are. And so we live in an era of propaganda because so many people have been conditioned to feel instead of to think. So don't think that we're experiencing uh, anything new here. Fifth commonality is confusion. Look at verse 29. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. 
Notice that even though there is confusion, they still rush into action. Even though there is confusion, they still find themselves outraged by what's happening. They don't know what's happening, but they're still outraged anyway over that. They're thinking with their hormones. And modern citizens often uh, today find the same confusion. Look at verse 32 as well. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. I remember a particularly emotional debate that went on in the late 90s in uh, the General Assembly of our uh, PCA. And it went on for quite some time, and they finally had the vote, and uh, the motion was killed, and I was glad, and I thought, okay, good, that's done with. But no, these guys were, some of these guys were very, very skilled at parliamentary maneuvering, and they knew Robert's rules and how they could get this uh, dealt with in another way. And so they introduced exactly the same provision, but with a motion that looked completely different the next day, and it passed. And I went up to some of the guys that I knew, some of my friends, and I said, what are you doing voting for that thing? You were arguing against it yesterday. They said, well, this is different. I said, no, you just voted for what you voted against yesterday. And as we examined it, they were crestfallen. They realized they had been had. They were completely blindsided by this. Well, there was an old gentleman at the General Assembly. Uh, He got up to the microphone and he admitted he had been confused by this thing as well. And he said, you know, there's a verse that describes our General Assembly And much to the amusement of everybody, he quoted this verse, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. (laughs) Well, it provided a little bit of comic uh, relief. But the point is that in any large group, there is usually anywhere upwards of 60 to 80% of the people who don't really understand fully what is going on when there's complicated debates that are happening. This is one of the reasons why a democracy never has worked and it never will work. We are not a democracy. We are a republic. At least that's the way we were set up as a republic. And there was a vast difference between the two. Unfortunately, America has thrown off her Republican restraints, not Republican Party, but Republican form of government. We've thrown off the constitutional restraints. Sixth commonality is the ever-present temptation to use force. Now, in verse 29, it was mob force, uh, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. But why did they bring them into the theater? Why didn't just kill them there on the spot? Why did they bring them into the theater? I think it was to get the democratically elected government to act on their behalf. This is what corporations and special interest groups and minorities and big business and oil and so many different organizations are trying to do in America. They know how to legally buy the votes of politicians. They know how to use advertising to put pressure on uncooperative politicians. The system stinks and it needs to be changed. These groups try to use the government to expropriate money from the taxpayer to cover, you know, either to profit or to cover for their mistakes. So one of the things I would encourage you to do, examine the earmarks from the last decade. Actually, you can go back beyond that as well. And I think you're going to be absolutely flabbergasted at the inane projects that politicians attach to any and every bill in order to bring back the bacon to their own state. Now, I would have expected on a big bill like this, it's an emergency bill, right, for bailing out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I would have expected, okay, they're not going to dare put any earmarks. I was just floored to see... The, the, the number of earmarks that they threw into that, uh, into that bill 
And um, I think we can expect uh, that there won't be much changing in the future. Anytime the feds dig into your pockets with a gun at your head, you're going to find special interest groups just like these silversmiths in Acts 19. Now, the final commonality that we see is demonized scapegoats. In verse 29, they can't find Paul. They'd really like to have had him. And so they demonize Gaius and Aristarchus. In verses 33 through 34, we find a guy who isn't even a Christian who was being uh, demonized there. Apparently, the Jews put forward one of their own people, and they're a little bit nervous what's going on. They say, hey, we're not Christians. Christians and Jews are quite different, and Alexander is trying to explain uh, what's going on. By the way, Luke is very careful in distinguishing terms, so it's clear, commentators say, that this is not a, a Christian that's being talked about here. But you know what? In an economics of envy, there is always collateral damage, always collateral unexpected damage. Look at how they treat this bystander who's just trying to fit into the system. Verses 33 through 34. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Well, Jews weren't any more popular than the, the Christians were, so he was demonized. Why not? You know, here's another guy that uh, uh, goes against their prejudices. Now, in a different situation, Sarah Palin might have been praised by some of the very people who are demonizing her now. I'm no supporter of uh, either of the parties, but I think it's unfair the way in which some of these people have been uh, demonizing her. Very unfair how she's being attacked. And all the parties seem to go into this. Why? Well, in an economics of envy, there's always got to be a scapegoat that you can blame. Who's getting the blame for the modern financial mess? Well, they're blaming the free market, which is ridiculous. Uh, or they're blaming an unregulated stock market, which is ridiculous. Or they blame the high salaries of executives, even Christians, evangelicals, people in this church sometimes blame uh, those things. Or they blame Bush or they blame Reagan. They blame anybody except for the people who are the real culprits. So we ought not to be surprised at the presence of such things. There's nothing new under the sun. This is a politics of envy and it appeals to a culture of envy. Socialism and Keynesianism could never succeed on their own merits. What they've got to do is constantly fan the flames of this ungodliness that we've just gone through here. Now, what I want to do uh, right now, make my last two points, uh, some observations of why a democracy is not the answer to an economics of envy and how this passage hints at the true solution. Now, in a democracy, people will always tend to gravitate to using the government for their own benefit. And, of course, this can happen in any, any system of government. It even happened in early America. There were uh, early Americans, despite the fact that they hated democracy, and this is a, they called it a mobocracy, they still were some people who were succeeding in using the federal government to promote uh, their own agendas. But the point is that the more democratic a country becomes, the more citizens will vote benefits to themselves from the public purse. First, verse 29, we see people rushing to the theater to get the government to do something. Now, they've got gods. Why don't they pray to their gods? Well, their gods are powerless. They are no gods. 
So what happens almost inevitably is they begin to treat the state as God, as the one that is the solution for everything. Now, in contrast, if you believe in God's total, absolute sovereignty over every area of life, then you're not going to believe in the total sovereignty of the state. You're going to believe in very limited, delegated sovereignty uh, being given uh, to the state. But when a nation becomes Arminian, or worse yet, becomes pagan, the state automatically begins to become a messianic state. Why do evangelicals today look to the federal government as the solution to everything? Well, look at their theology. I think the two are correlative. In the 1700s, the federal government wasn't seen as the solution to hardly anything. Now, I didn't write down what the statistics are, but uh, by far the majority, I mean, most of Americans at that time were Calvinistic. They didn't trust uh, human nature. Uh, in R.J. Rushdoony's book, The Politics of Guilt and Pity, he demonstrated that from Rome to the present, the more democratic a country, the more centralized it will become, the more divinized the state. And friends, we're living in a time when Washington, D.C. has been divinized by even evangelicals. The federal government has become the solution to everything. Health care, mortgages, um, you name it. Unemployment, you name it. Both parties are talking about it, are promising it. So a revolution has happened. We have become a de facto democracy and the Constitution has been overthrown. A second reason why democracies are not the answer is that officials are very vulnerable in a democracy. Verse 31, Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Now, they couldn't guarantee his protection. They're very nervous, and even the exceedingly smooth words of the city clerk, and I should have put the references in there, verses 35 through 40, behind point B there, his exceedingly smooth words, you, you can just see there, he's got to be ever so careful how he speaks. He has to appear to be in agreement with the people, and uh, he uses a veiled threat, but he's got to be careful even on that, of Roman interference. So what he does is he's portraying himself, hey, Rome's going to get on our, on our case. You know, they're the bad guys. I'm here to protect you guys. And so he didn't want to get in trouble with Rome. He didn't want to get in trouble with the people. And he's using manipulation here. And the same is true today. Any politician who tries to bring true reform, which means cutting all unconstitutional spending, agencies and programs, is probably going to get voted out of office. It, unfortunately, the way it seems to work, it's suicidal for him to do that. As Gary North pointed out in his book, the politician has to use the currency of his realm, votes. He's vulnerable, and it is rare to find a true statesman who stays in office for decades. I think it's a tribute to the district that Ron Paul is from in Texas that he has been able to stay in Congress for as long as he has. To me, it's just an amazing, uh, amazing thing that he's been able to be there. Officials in a democracy are vulnerable. That's why we must oppose democracy or what our founding fathers called mobocracy and bring our nation back to its constitutional restraints. The third reason is that official business can change at the last minute. Now, Paul, Gaius, and Aristarchus are the official business of this meeting. But in verse 33, totally new subject gets introduced. It's Alexander. Let's take it out on the Jews. Why? Well, Jews are universally disliked. Why not do that? Now, if you haven't been to Congress's websites, I urge you to go on there and just look around. And you're going to find some pretty interesting stuff 
uh, on that place. Often, the earmarks are not introduced when they're first discussing a bill. Uh, They vote on the bill, and then the Senate votes on the bill. In this case, they did it wrong. Uh, It got introduced by the Senate, and then the Congress voted. But then it's hammered out in committee, all of the differences, and that's where everybody sneaks in their earmarks. I'll vote for this if you guys give me $20 million for this and $40 million for that other uh, project that's over there. But earmarks, as universally hated as those earmarks are, at least the earmarks that are going to other people's uh, states, are insisted upon when people want the money coming to our own state. And so long as we continue to act like a democracy, we will never be able to change this. Now, fourth, unlike a republic where rulers rule according to the Constitution, yes, they're elected by the people, but they rule according to the Constitution, not according to the wishes of the people. Let me repeat that. Unlike a republic where it's supposed to be that rulers rule according to the Constitution, not according to the wishes of the people, in a democracy, you've got this... this, Um, interplay between politicians being manipulated by special interest groups and the politicians themselves manipulating the public. The emotional display in verse uh, 34, I think I've already mentioned, commented on that, but I think it illustrates that manipulation very well. Verse 35 shows that officials tend to play to prejudices. Now, I doubt these officials believed a word that they were saying there. Most public officials of that day, if you read some of their speeches and some of their writings, we have access to these writings of the Romans and the Greeks. You read them, they were cynics. They, they didn't even believe the gods existed. Some of them said, well, maybe they do, but they don't really have much relationship uh, to our lives. And so his speech is a sickening pandering to what the people wanted to hear. It was very effective, but that's a point. He was using their religion to appease them. And I tell you, this is exactly what's happening in America. Look at verse 35. When the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? What rot? I mean, what absolute rot? None of those Roman officials or Greek officials, well, I shouldn't say none of them, but none that I've read in those days even believed that kind of stuff. They didn't believe that the meteorite that fell out of heaven was the goddess. They knew somebody had carved the image out of that meteorite. But what they are doing is uh, they, are, uh, they are trying to appease people by telling them what they want to hear, telling them what they want to hear. Now, I'm not saying that politicians always intend to say outright lies, but they are coached to not say certain things. I know you believe this, but don't you utter a word about this. Here's the things that the public wants to hear. This is what you should be uh, speaking about. It's all staged, and it's why democracy will never work. America was not intended to be a democracy. It was set up as a republic. Now, verse 36 shows this public official also playing to the ignorance of the people. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. He's trying to calm their fears. Okay, whether it's a 9-11 catastrophe, uh, a Hurricane Katrina, an Iraq war, or the causes of the failing of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, politicians try to soothe an ignorant population with misinformation and promises that are 
pandering at best, but are bold-faced lies at worst. And yet people buy it. They must really think that the government can do everything, that it really is God. And politicians know, no matter how much that these radio talk shows hosts may speak against them, people will forget it. Now, I, I, I know there's a lot of these politicians want to shut down these radio talk shows uh, because they don't like uh, what is being uh, said. But here is the point. You're going to have increased tyranny as long as you have an ignorant population. I think one of the little tiny keys in terms of turning things around is that we must educate people in the Constitution. There's never going to be a way that we can hold politicians' feet to the fire without that. Now, we've already mentioned officials playing to fears, but verse 40 mentions it again. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. Nobody likes to get into trouble. But he was basically saying, you know, this city is going to be in real deep trouble with Rome if we don't watch it. Demetrius was claiming Paul was the danger to the city. That's what his speech was all about. Paul is a total danger to, to our economy. What's going on? This city clerk is very subtly saying, you know what? It's Demetrius who is the danger because everything you're doing here is going to get us into trouble uh, with Rome. So he says, do you guys want to lose every benefit that you have gained? You see, this city had been given a special status that most cities did not have uh, in the empire. And he's saying, do you want to lose all of the, the benefits that you as businessmen and corporations have been enjoying that other cities don't have? You think you've been losing money from Paul. Just wait till Rome finds out. Let's hope Rome doesn't find out. Let's just be quiet and let's dismiss. That's the threat. And both citizens and politicians are driven by fears in a democracy. Now, one of the fears that politicians submit to is the fear of being attacked in the media. And I can understand why they would be afraid of that. Uh, the media can say that the politician is inciting hatred or is motivated by greed or is a racist or some other accusation. You've been hearing all of this over the past months. And immediately these politicians are tempted to back off. But you know what? Politicians do this with the public as well. They tried to railroad public opinion on this bailout with fear. And it's despicable. And it won't be changed unless we stop acting like a democracy. And then finally, people are easily used in a democracy. Now, you think you can manipulate and control the elected officials or you'll vote the rascals out of uh, Washington. But frequently, more frequently than not, we are the ones manipulated. In this chapter, we see the naive public used by Demetrius in verses 23 through 24. Then they're used by the magistrates in verses 35 through 41. Now, we've already covered that territory, but I just want to, I think it's worth mentioning that bureaucrats can be counted on two things. Uh, they can be counted on to follow law to the max if they want to keep their positions. And you can see that in verses 38 through 40. You follow protocol. And then secondly, they keep their noses clean so that they don't get in trouble with those who are higher up in the chain. And Paul uses that to his advantage later on in this book. Now, let me give the last point, point number four, by showing that this passage hints at four things that can indeed limit the problems inherent in an economics of envy. The first is an appeal to objective procedures. Verse 38, 
Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Now, Demetrius was not following protocol. Now, by itself, that's not going to stop an economics uh, of envy uh, because you can use protocol to you know, get money for yourself if it's deeply entrenched in the system. But the point is here, there are all kinds of regulations that can dampen, put a damper on and slow down the progress of evil. Many of the protocols to slow down evil in the federal government have long ago vanished and some of the remaining ones are under attack because they are inefficient. We want inefficiencies in government. They were deliberately put there by our founding fathers because they didn't trust depraved people in office to have too much efficiency. Let me just illustrate with Nebraska. Making Nebraska a unicameral a state is arguably unconstitutional, but it is definitely stupid. Okay? We have more efficiency in Nebraska than other states do, but we have less checks and balances than we had when Nebraska was a two-house constitutional republic. Second, the process that was being appealed to was a process of enforcing tort law and or contract law. And I think that's quite clear in verses 37 through 38. This city clerk must have known that Demetrius did not have a case that could stand up in law, whether you're dealing with tort or whether you're dealing with contract issues. He wasn't interested in a free market. He's not interested in contract. He's not interested in following the law. His interest is in using the government to further enrich himself. But that's a critical, critical, critical point in any society. Without true enforcement of contract law in a free market, that free market is going to be destroyed over time. It will be destroyed. Now, if a judge can uh, change a contract between two people, between two individuals, by lowering the interest rates, lowering the principal, what you have effectively done is completely destroyed contract law. Uh, I think this is probably the most dangerous aspect of the Paulson bailout and the other bailouts that are being proposed to follow after this by the various candidates. As one analyst pointed out, this bailout, quote, was a move that all but destroys contract law. It's despicable. It stinks to high heaven. And it just astonishes me that there is not more being done about this. The third thing that was used to solve this little crisis was an appeal to a higher standard of law. Now, granted, it was humanistic law. Okay? It was humanistic law, but it was still a higher law that this government official could appeal to. And I should point out, Paul appeals to the same higher humanistic laws later on uh, in the book of Acts. And so don't think that just because a higher law is imperfect that it's not valuable. Uh, I'm willing to concede that the Constitution, for example, is not a perfect document, but it is a very valuable document that we can appeal to. Look at verse 39. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. Notice the phrase, in danger of being called in question. Being called in question by who? It's by Rome. They're violating Roman law. Uh, notice also this, uh, the next phrase, reason which we may give to account for this. Who are they accountable for? Even though they're a Greek democracy, they were still accountable to Rome for Rome's graces. And so the city uh, clerk was subject to a higher law of the treaty that had been signed by Rome. 
The magistrates in verse 31 are also subject to a higher law. It can help keep them honest. Now, there's been a lot of debate, you know, as to whether, you know, I disagree with Gary North on his uh, analysis of the Constitution, but I think there's legitimate debate. Is it, was it an attempt to secularize our nation? Is it a flawed document? I would say, well, definitely it's a flawed document. As to the conspiracy theory on it, uh, I, I tend to question that. But as long as the Constitution has been followed and has been honored, whoa, I thought the roof was falling down, has been honored in our nation, has been enforced, it's kept politicians and citizens from effectively using um, force to redistribute wealth. Once the Constitution began to be ignored, everything was up for grabs. Now, I just looked at uh, this past week uh, the... Uh, where our budget was at at the beginning of this year, in January of uh, 2008, and a conservative estimate is that roughly 75% of our budget, $2 trillion, was unconstitutional. Now, since that time, there's been all kinds of money that's been approved, so it's much higher than that. But when you look at that high rate, this means that our Congress, our Senate, our executive are utterly unaccountable to the Constitution. The Constitution means nothing. And when that happens, you can just count on there being massive, much more massive theft uh, throughout our nation. Uh, we need to get back to the constitutional strengths. But here's the point. If we, as a citizenry, remain ignorant of the Constitution, we can never appeal to it like the city clerk did. We can't hold politicians' feet to the fire. Now, is there an ultimate solution to this sad state of affairs? Well, perhaps in God's mercy there may be. Uh, Gary North uh, says that he only knows of one case where such a culture as ours has uh, ever been reversed. I happen to be a little bit more optimistic than Gary North because you look at the first thousand years of church history, there was country after country became Christianized and those things were turned around and were reversed. And so God could once again Christianize our nation and things could be reversed. But what are we to do if God decides, you know, I'm not going to reverse things for the next 100 years or 200 years. What are we to do in that situation? We could talk about the four G's of God and guns and gold and groceries, and I think there's uh, a place for that. Gary North talks about that. It's very important that we do take some precautions and preparations, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to restrict myself. What was Paul doing in Acts chapter 19 to be faithful in a faithless generation? Should we push for biblical laws? Well, I definitely think that's a good idea. God may may not prosper what we're doing. Paul said that he taught the whole counsel of God, which would include biblical law. But here's the direction I want to go. When you have been robbed repeatedly by our modern messianic Robin Hood state, it's very easy to become cynical, very easy to become bitter, to become disillusioned, to just give up on trying to even impact uh, our culture, our country altogether. And I want you to be like Paul, faithful in the midst of a culture of envy. Let me give you a little bit of perspective on this. I have a friend who lives in Zimbabwe and has been ministering there for quite a number of uh, years. And he is going, he and his family are going through troubles that are thousands of times worse than anything we'll, we're likely to face in the near future uh, here in America. And I'm reading this not to make you scared or upset. I'm just reading it to get, give you perspective. 
Now, this friend of mine, he could very easily leave. He has the finances. He could leave uh, the country, but he's chosen to keep his family there to make a difference. And let me read you another associate's description of what he is facing. I don't usually read long letters like this, but I, I think it really does give perspective. Today, I went from one meeting to another using the main streets in Harare. It was pure chaos. The city had no electricity. The traffic lights at all intersections were not working, and the traffic was gridlocked. The police were nowhere to be seen, and even as we sat in the traffic, a police car drove past, ramped the pavement, and drove through the intersection, paying no attention to what was going on around them. At the Reserve Bank, it was the same. They are printing money and creating money in other forms so fast that the inflation rate is no longer calculable. What we do know is that the RTGS rate, that is, the rate at which foreign exchange is exchanged in the open market for money transferred by electric means, is moving by the hour. At the beginning of August, it was to one against the U.S. dollar after we dropped nine zeros, and yesterday it was two million to one. Quite a change in eight weeks. At this rate, it will be no less than ten million to one by next weekend. Desperate people are queuing for days at the banks and other financial houses to try and get their money out of the system so that they can spend it before it literally melts to nothing. In Gueru last week, the main street was almost closed by crowds at ATMs and banks. In Harare, literally thousands of people jam every cash outlet. The maximum withdrawal by an individual is $20,000 a day worth U.S. .001 cents. The Reserve Bank, faced with the escalating consequences of their own ineptitude, are now printing money on plain local bond paper with no security features. The mafia are having a field day, and so many counterfeit notes are circulating that people are refusing the new notes. Instead of adopting a carefully crafted plan to overcome these problems and to correct the fundamentals that are driving the system towards collapse, the governor today simply closed down the RTGS system, and I understand even the interbank systems, rendering the only alternative window for payments impassable. It is illegal to trade in hard currency. You can go to jail for this if you try. It is illegal to change money on the street. You cannot charge a market price for what you sell unless you are willing to risk intervention or worse. Even today, there were reports of the government taking action against retailers who were quote-unquote overcharging. Business is unable to pay their staff in cash. They pay them by bank transfer and then watch as half their workforce is absent all day standing in queues. Non-cash forms of payment are rampant. Barter is common. The use of fuel coupons with a face value of about U.S. $30 each is also common tender. The BBC carried a story this week of an auction in Harare where the bids were all expressed in coupons. Most firms are now being forced to sell their goods and services in hard currency, rand or U.S. dollars, even though it is illegal. Businesses do not bank the money because the Reserve Bank keeps a close watch on any foreign exchange balances on the banks and simply expropriates them. Crediting the owner of these accounts with local currency at a ridiculous rate of exchange and then using the flow of hard currency to support the lifestyles of the small elite that is still in charge. Here we are, four weeks away from the start of the rainy season, we have 2% of our fertilizer requirements in stock. All other inputs are virtually unobtainable. The Reserve Bank is handing out expensive farm equipment to ZANU PF fat cats like sweets to a kindergarten but they cannot provide fuel or seed or fertilizer or chemicals. It's madness. Remaining farmers, black and white, are being evicted from their farms by Zanopiaf heavies, such as the deputy governor of the Reserve Bank, and what is left of the once world-class tobacco industry is facing extinction. 
Dairy farmers, pig farms, and fruit estates are all facing illegal invasion and disruption of activity. The police simply respond to appeals for help by saying they cannot help because it is political. And by the way, for those of you who think you ought to follow Gary North's advice and go off way off in distant countryside, let me, let me just assure you, the government's reach can get you there just as, I mean, redistribution can get you anywhere. I don't think that's the solution. But anyway, back to the letter. Our retail chains are empty. Many stores are closed. The wholesalers are no longer functional. An industry is running at 10% of capacity. Power supplies are down to about half of demand. Fuel is in short supply and spare parts are unobtainable. All basic foods are virtually only available in the parallel market at very high prices. Although government schools have opened their doors and the children have gone to school, no teachers are at work. In the midst of this chaos, Mugabe went on a 10-day spree to New York to make a speech. The cost of a 20-minute opportunity to denigrate the leading nations in the world, the very people who have fed this population for eight years, was the cost of taking a Boeing 767 to New York and back via Egypt. The 54-member delegation must have cost at least U.S. $2 million in allowances and expenses while there. Then on return, he wastes another week with no action on the formation of new government. Now three weeks since the SADC facilitated deal with the MDC was signed. And remember, we have not had a proper governance since the 29th of March, nearly seven months. Since Parliament was convened several weeks ago, we have had no government at all. When confronted with the need to make a decision on the allocation of ministerial portfolios, ZANU-PF has been frozen in its tracks like a child confronted with a cobra, simply not knowing what to do and beginning to realize for the first time that the end of the road is in sight for them. Obviously, we have it good in America. Amen? We have got it so good. I'm confident we will pull through this crisis, and there will be another crisis and another crisis uh, after that. But I read that letter to say that if an economics of envy is not stopped on every level in our society, it will push us to a suicidal going over of an economic cliff, whether it takes weeks, years, decades. And I urge you to start preparing yourselves. If possible, get out of debt. If possible, have reserves may take a long time before you even need those, but I think you need to be prepared. But above all, trust God, be faithful, even when there is unfaithfulness all around you. Paul did not bail out of his duties simply because he was surrounded by an economics of envy. He continued to serve God faithfully, just like my friend continues to serve God in Zimbabwe. Now, here is a passage from Psalm 37 that has really encouraged Kathy and my um, my wife and I, and has given us a real perspective, the Lord gave this to her uh, three, or, three or four weeks ago. Despite complaints in this psalm about everything being topsy-turvy in his world, the psalmist says this, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger. And forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. 
You know, the whole psalm gives encouragements like that. I've only read you the first portion. It assures us that the meek shall inherit the earth. But in the meantime, it tells us, be involved. Let me give you four concluding points from verse 3. First, the phrase, trust in the Lord. He's in control. Whether he's bringing judgment, whether he's going to bring mercy, he's in control. We can totally trust him. Second phrase, do good. In other words, don't trust the Lord and just passively wait. Do something. He says, do good, be involved, seek to be of an influence in this nation. It may be God will prosper uh, your influence. So do good. Don't let cynicism make you stop trying. Third, dwell in the land. Don't bail out. Don't be escapist. Seek to be influenced. And once again, God may prosper you where He strategically placed you in the business world or wherever it may be. Fourth, Feed on His faithfulness. God is faithful to His people and you can feed upon that faithfulness. He will sustain you. You can't count on men. They're not faithful. But you can count on God. So those four phrases, trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, feed on His faithfulness. If you take those four points, you're going to be able to move forward with confidence even as Paul did. And may God receive the glory and advance His cause in our land. Amen. Father, thank You for this, Your Word, that is a light to our paths, that it shines the spotlight not only on our individual lives as we've been looking at in previous sermons, but it even shines it on the the global economy that we are facing today. Father, I pray that it would give us perspective not to be frightened, uh, not to give up, not to become cynical, but that it would give us perspective to know that you do all things well. You cause the idols of men to come crashing to the ground. And Father, may uh, the day-gone idol of uh, modern socialism and Keynesianism fall to the ground and break its neck. Uh, Father, may it be replaced with a godly uh, economy. But Father, above everything else, we pray that people's trust in false gods their trust in a messianic state, their trust in anything else in creation that they may worship and hope in would be dashed to the ground and instead they would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in whom alone we can have salvation. We love You, Father. We bless You. We desire that Your kingdom would advance, that Your glory would be lifted up. And so I pray that as uh, Rodney spoke earlier uh, today, that each one of us would boldly, without any shame, speak forth the gospel into this culture, even as Paul spoke it into the culture that he lived in. And Father, as people come to faith, that we would disciple them in the whole counsel of God, and we would see them beginning to impact every sphere of society. Bless us to this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.